Hey everyone, welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host Sadia Khan. How's everyone doing? Especially our American listeners. How are you all doing? Feeling good, right? In a more tolerant America, I feel more relaxed. I am happier. I did not realize how much of a trauma it was to live through Trump's presidency, but it's all behind us now. And as we move forward, I want all of us to be vigilant. I want all of us to be cautious, be optimistic, and hold power accountable as and when needed. We cannot be complacent. We did that before Trump and we ended up with him. So in order to ensure that we don't have another fascist in the White House, we have to work harder. Our today's guest does just that. She informs, she delivers news, she gets down to the issues that are important to us. She's a journalist. As you all know, we love journalists at Immigrantly. We've interviewed a handful of them on our show. And I'm sure it's not always fun to do journalism, but they play such an important role in our society. Today we have Tanvi Misra. She is a writer, and as I already mentioned, she's a multimedia journalist who primarily focuses on immigration. But she's also written about housing, economic inequality, and criminal justice. Her work has been featured at the Fuller Project, Bloomberg, City Lab, CQ Roll Call, The Atlantic, NPR, and the BBC. I think she is freelancing at the moment, but we'll ask Tanvi. Let's get started. They were more likely to favor refugee resettlement as like a general abstraction on a national mm. level but once mm. you know it came down to the local level and their own like um neighborhoods or their own cities they were less likely to back it so you grew up in delhi which some people say looks a lot like lahore that's where i grew up um and so i'm feeling this instant connection with you tanvi and you're also very very vocal about your identity in fact many of them i was reading a piece that you did called i am not india's daughter one of your concluding remarks is i am not defined completely by any of the million pieces of my identity and i loved this statement um it's such a powerful statement of having a million pieces to your identity because the way i see it for many people of color or immigrants it's easy to associate ourselves with just one larger identity we don't want to delve into many or explain many identities or facets of our life but i know that doesn't do justice to our many complexities as humans right what else makes up your identity <laughs> well i yeah i i just feel like there is so much i think of course you know the the things that immediately come to mind uh, and as i mentioned in that piece like you know being a daughter being a sister Uh, being a good partner you know all of those are certainly parts of it but you know there there's a lot more to who i am how i am in a friendship and then of course you know my identity um as it relates to it's so contextual right so as it mm. relates to being here in 
the U.S., um, what, you know, uh, as an immigrant, that is one part of it. But in India, on the other hand, you know, I'm very privileged and I have a very, I have to be very cognizant of that as well. And so that's mm-hmm. part of my identity that I need to sort of reconcile these other parts with as well. Um, the fact that, you know, I grew up in a Hindu household that was of, in terms of caste, very privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm. That is something that I have to be cognizant of and understand how that kind of fits into these other pieces and how that fits into sort of the larger context of the world that we all inhabit. Um, So I think those are all different moving parts. I mean, they all evolve and kind of in conjunction or sometimes in friction with each other, but Mm. certainly um, they all exist. And I think what often happens is that when we try to, you know, I think there's a I certainly see this with immigrants, for example, is mm. that um, because we want to kind of feel like a collective sometimes because we are made to not feel a part of the collective, <laughs> uh, you know, that we we try to do that in a way that sometimes uh, flattens our own identity and flattens sort of the nuances there, right, of the context mm. that we, um, the, the prejudices and the privileges and the constraints that we bring with us. And so mm. that is something that, that I... Uh, have always been kind of cautious of, but certainly much more so uh, as I've grown older, like a uh, lot more cautious of, you know, not necessarily wanting to flatten myself in, in, in those ways and understanding that those are nuances that um, need to be unpacked. It's so fascinating that you talk about your privileges, which many people don't talk about, right? And how they benefit in the long run. But going back to the identity piece, you said something else in that piece about being a sexual being. Why do you think that was important to include? And how do you think women's sexuality plays into the types of narratives that are given to her? Um, yeah, I just thought it was important because it's often something that's left out, you know, mm. about especially about Indian women. and uh, And sometimes, I mean within the context of, I mean, where you are, we kind of leave it out ourselves, you know? And so I didn't want to do that. Maybe it's not as important to someone else, but it was important to me. I think sexuality manifests for everyone in a different way. And Hmm. aspects of that are public and aspects of that are private, you know, depending on the person. Um, I think for me, it was just important to just even acknowledge that that is a thing that exists because it's just not often acknowledged. It's just kind of expected that, you know, you are everything but that. And if it is acknowledged, it's acknowledged in the context of a broader framework, such as marriage, or, you know, often in a, you know, sort of heterosexual in relation to, um, you know, a man. And so I, I wanted to kind of acknowledge that that is a self kind of self-actualized, self-embodied, self-sufficient like aspect. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think with South Asian cultures, gender identities are still defined in binaries. We haven't moved past that. And when it comes to a woman's sexuality, a woman is not considered sexual, as you said, until she's married. And even then, it's not about her sexuality. It's about having sex. Then she's permitted to have sex to procreate. So there's a reason why she can have sex. Most of us, I'm sure you did this and I I did this growing up. It's like you have to somehow tiptoe around your sexual identity. You don't really own it or embrace it the way you should. And I have realized that 
I embrace it much more now than I did in my 20s, even like 30s. It's crazy how it has evolved for me. Has it evolved for you or were you aware of it? I think I was aware of it quite early and uh, I just didn't understand. I think it's difficult to explain because I think I kind of just assumed it was natural. And even though there there was messaging you know, all around me that it wasn't. I, I kind of, I think I was really kind of arrogant and obstinate. Like, I just was like, well, whatever. Like, I'm just going to do this, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I'm just, this is who I am. And I don't think this is wrong. And um, I think I just kind of went with that, that I had, I think, a level of trust in my sort of moral uh, compass in that sense that now I look back and I'm like I wonder where I got that from but uh, I just felt like if it didn't feel wrong to me then it was fine you know if I wasn't hurting anyone of course that's you know and and these were again like these were sort of messages that um, or or ideas that came to me in bits and pieces I don't think there was ever you know a seminar or a talk or anything Um, (laughs) you know um, but but I do think that these were all um, I think maybe like through reading and through I was I was kind of uh, taking in and absorbing these things and kind of um, uh, deconstructing them in an unconscious on an unconscious level. Mm. Um, mm. I, I'm not really sure, but I, I do. I do feel like there was not as much. I wasn't so you know there wasn't a lot of angst. Uh, I was just like, mm. well, this is what it is, you know, and um, I don't think this is there's anything wrong with it. And I I do think that there is a sense of again, you know, I I do think it comes back to also a lot of different things, including the fact that I you know. I don't know if everyone else, you know, from a different place, class, et cetera, in India would be able to have that. Um, I do think that there are certain aspects of it, you know, in terms of exposure and in terms of what I was being able to read, et cetera, that may have helped with that. Uh, I don't know if everyone has access to, but I do think everyone should have access to. Um, So, so I don't know. I haven't completely, uh, I think, understood where all of that came from. But I do know that it was, uh, it was something that I, I sort of just kind of took for granted. I was like, well, this is just how things are. You know, it's interesting because in Pakistan, what I see is that upper class and lower class are more liberated when it comes to a woman's sexuality. It's the middle class that apparently seems to be more like gatekeepers of traditions and cultures, and that ties to suppressing a woman's sexuality because you just want to preserve the broader communal structures, which is at the expense of a woman's sexuality. Um, Or even people living in rural Pakistan, they are a lot more emancipated. Women are a lot more emancipated and liberated, maybe because they go out and work in the fields and they are not bound to confines of their homes or they are not expected to be transmitters of certain traditions? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not really sure about that. I, I mean, I would, I would, I think, have to just do a lot more research into how that plays into, I think there is a nugget of truth, uh, at least in the Indian context. Uh, obviously, I can't speak to the Pakistani context. Right. Um, but in the Indian context about sort of the middle class trying to hold on to uh, certain ideas or tradition, certainly my own uh, extended family is very much that way. Um, but I do think that there are uh, people within all sort of walks of life and 
classes or at least that is my theory I, I don't hmm. you know have empirical research to show <laughs> but I do feel just anecdotally that there are people against you know trying to go against the grain that are of every background um, and hmm. I think that there is you know they're often talked over or whatever and sometimes you know um, singled out um, hmm. in certain ways uh, but but I do think that there are people there's just a lot of what I've seen over the last maybe decade or so, but certainly mm. it has gone back even further. Uh, mm. But I, I've really seen it become very visible over the last decade is a lot of activism on this front. Um, huh. Every, you know, from every, um, people of every walks of life, uh, certainly with the queer community in India, there has been a lot of activism and that has been led, you know, by um, transgender folk and by people who don't identify on the binary and by, you know, um, women who um, who identify as gay or bisexual. And so mm. there is, I feel, like a lot going on on that front. And, and the, these are people of all classes and, you know, of all backgrounds. And so, so I really feel um, very optimistic looking at that um, yeah. and hoping that those conversations, you know, continue. What you've described, coalition building of sorts, why do you think that's happening? Is there a reason behind it? What's the trigger in your opinion? I don't think there is one trigger, but I do think that there is a lot of different socio-cultural um, and economic, you know, forces behind all of this. Um, I think, you know, when I grew up, it was when I was growing up in India, it was very much mm. like a, a, you know, newly liberalized because we had the um, liberalization reforms in 1990. Um, mm. you no, know, everything was kind of very open market, very um, sort of this is, you know, there was a certain amount of, I would say, foolhardy confidence in yeah. how things would turn out. Um, and there was a certain amount of assumptions that this is okay, fine, that didn't work. So this will definitely work. And I, I think people were com complacent to a certain extent about how uh, things would be. And once it started becoming clear that that is not how, <laughs> you know, once <laughs> things started going downhill and, you know, or maybe they just never took off, uh, depending on how you see it, it started becoming clear that more complicated conversations were required. Um, so I think that is one aspect. I mean, that that would be the economic aspect. Certainly, you know, I think technology has a huge role to play in this. Things have become more democratic just by virtue of, you know, everyone having access to mm. um, platforms like Facebook, Twitter, etc. Now TikTok, uh, you know, but like all of these different platforms, uh, I think it has created connections and um, information sharing and coalition building across borders, I think. Mm. One thing mm. that I've been really, you know, interested in in tracking and seeing is there's a lot of really great activism that is happening both, you know, in, in diaspora communities um, that ties back to activism that's happening in India. And that's really mm. cool to see. Um, so I think that, you know, it's sort of kind of a cycle that kind of informs everything is informing everything else. I certainly also think, you know, um, it, when we talk about the social context here, women have more and more sort of joined the workforce. And that comes with um, very apparent and very evident as we've seen in the news, dangers, um, they were met with uh, violence in response to that independence and in, in response to that, 
growing, you know, self-sufficiency. And so mm-hmm. that has generated its own conversation. I think how these, going back to how we started and about how different parts of our identity interact, I think there's great conversation about intersectionalism right now mm-hmm. with, um, you know, not just that, oh, we need to define ourselves in opposition to, you know, the, the colonizers as we did, <laughs> over, you know, that whole post-colonial discourse that we kind of grew up with or not in in diaspora communities, not just in opposition to white Western groups of people, uh, yeah. but, but also in, you know, relation to each other and how we ourselves have hierarchies that we need to question mm. and prejudices that we need to tackle. And so I think that's really, really interesting. You know, there's been so much great work by um, great activism under the Modi government, for example, by uh, Muslim activists. Um, I went back earlier last year, just for a little bit to India. And, you know, and this was all over the like international news, but all of those women, you know, who did sit-ins in opposition to the citizenship law, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of them were middle class or uh, middle class or working class Muslim women, you know, and right. so like, I'm not saying that that's new. I think, mm. you know, women have of all like walks of life have always been involved in activism. I do think it's much more visible now. And I think that's great. A significant portion of your work is about immigration. Something that I'm always curious to talk about is conversation around borders, right? We heard a lot of rhetoric, political discourse um, during Trump's four years. From your perspective, what do you think is the real function of borders in public discourse? Um, I think often in public discourse, borders are sort of a rhetorical device more so Mm. than something real. (laughs) I think they are used (laughs) as um, kind of symbols of order and disorder. Uh, mm. rather than, again, like a real place where there are real people um, with, you know, complicated personalities and, right. and real, you know, problems and, and joys and pain and all of that stuff. Um, and I, I think this is true everywhere, but certainly we've seen um, a lot of this amplified in the last four or five years in the U.S. is how borders are sort of like a boogeyman, right? It's like where the monsters come from or where the invaders come from or whatever. And um, that doesn't necessarily uh, take into account um, the history of um, that region where the border now is uh, Mm. or the fact that borders were created by people, you know? And so they're not something, they're not sort of natural terrain, like mountains or, or rivers that was that are set in stone or sort of naturally there. They're, they're a social construct. Exactly. They're social construct. <laughs> they're artificial. Um, and what we're trying to do now is trying to make more and more around the world, trying to basically manifest those social constructs in, in physical, like mm. physically express them right with walls and with barriers and stuff like that so so I think that's sort of my where I've come down to based on you know all of the reporting I've done. How do you feel about open borders? You know it it depends on who's talking about that and like what Mm. they mean because it means a lot of things and it means everything and nothing you know Mm. open borders what 
you know, someone I recently spoke with about the US-Mexico border was said this to me and it was an interesting, like, what is a closed border? Like, what would right. that look like? You yeah. know, if there's yeah. no such thing as a closed border, then what is an open border? Like, how are we defining mm. this? Mm. I often think it becomes a kind of, uh, and again, this person that I spoke with, uh, uh, she lives around, along this uh, southern border. And uh, I think that this was a very good point. It was like, it, it often becomes a dog whistle, right? Like, oh, this mm. idea of open border actually recalls a lot of decades, at least in the United States, of imagery of, you know, all of these black and brown people uh, mm. kind of take overrunning, you know, what is otherwise like a civilized place. Um, <laughs> and that is like, you know, steeped in obviously racist ideas. And so... Mm. Um, I think when you say open borders, that's what a lot of people think of. Think and about, that's, yeah. You know, um, but again, like it would really depend on the policy and the technicalities of it. But the EU has quote unquote open borders. And, yeah. you know, it's not that these systems have not worked. I think it's it's it depends on sort of how you're defining them. They are, of course, borders that are uh, where there is where people are processed um, going from one place to the other, but mm. they are a lot more porous than, you know, what the uh, U.S. southern border has become, for example. And so right. so I do think that there is a lot of nuance and a lot of technical, like, um, so yeah. I always just question, I, you know, I feel like that's thrown around so much at this point. I'm just like, okay, yeah. so you tell me what that means and then <laughs> about sort of the implications of that. Then we're talking about policy. Joe Biden has released his plans for his immigration policies, and some of these include an eight-year path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, um, immediate green cards for DREAMers, TPS. He's also thinking of, I think the policy also embodies lifting limits on key employment visas. Are you hopeful about the changes that he's promising to implement? Or are we going back to the quote-unquote normal that we had before Trump, which really was extremely unsettling uh, for many um, people of color? Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question. And I don't think I have a very satisfactory answer yet. Um, <laughs> I would say uh, I am always skeptical, and so I am. I'm sort of watching everything happen uh, with with a healthy healthy amount of skepticism. I do think that there are some tensions within the Democratic base and hmm. the Democratic, um, like in Congress, and then also you know there are forces sort of pushing Biden to the left. I mean, even the policies. Um, he announced yesterday, I mean, uh, the fact that he did it on the first day, that he reversed a couple of things on the first day yeah. was kind of surprising to me. And then um, one of the big things that he did yesterday was declare a moratorium on deportations, uh, a 100-day moratorium on deportations. Which oh, is, he did that. Wow. It was. It came up pretty late last night, but, mm. um, but he did that. And um, that was something that a lot of progressive activists and advocates had been really pushing for. It's, you know, obviously details, everything is in the details and um, those are not out yet. So there might be like loopholes and caveats. They, you know, always are. But there is mm. certainly some indication that there are um, strong forces that are pushing this administration forward in order in mm. terms of or, or for the left in terms of if you want to kind of talk about it that way I, I don't always like to talk about it that way because I don't think necessarily everything is right or left some things are just you know going forward in a certain direction yeah. um, so there are certainly forces pushing to 
not just default to the Obama era realities of immigration and go beyond those and learn from those. Um, mm. I'm not entirely sure about whether those forces will prevail. Yet. Yeah, <laughs> they are still pushing, and I, I do think that you know the Biden administration is very self-conscious about the optics of all of this. And so, Mm. you know, how they uh, balance that with uh, those sort of political considerations with what obviously a lot of advocates and and their, you know, people, um, voters have, have wanted is kind of an interesting question that I'm still kind of watching for. So your work covers immigration, but it also covers um, urbanization. You've talked about inequities that exist in countries' systems and structures. We also have tendency to villainize rural America, right, for their backward views. And you've covered rural America. There are cities like Portland that is supposed to be progressive, but it has the worst police brutality. As someone who writes about you know, what's happening in these urban spaces. What are some of the false perceptions about cities or rural America that you want to debunk? I mean, there's so many, but just to start, I think people, many people assume that cities are not racist and that is not true. um, You know, and, and there's those misconceptions, right, about geography that kind of exist everywhere. But for example, like I think a lot of people think that just because the South was more explicit with like the kind of its racist past that the North Mm. is completely free of racism, which is not true uh, at all. If you read the history, it's just a different kind of racism and it manifested in a different way and is still just as, you know, quite as bad. But um, I think that's similar with cities where people think that just because cities are democratic that they are, or they lean democrat, that they're just like, you know, utopias, which is obviously not true. I think they're still built on a lot of systems that are uh, discriminatory. They are built on a legacy of racism so those you know those sort of um, forces are still at play and they kind of the thing is they've they've informed how the cities have been built so it's kind of hard to see them now because they've become those forces have become sort of they're invisible often um Mm. and it's kind of hard to um it dismantle it, right? Because these these right. systems and these these physical structures have already been built. So I think for those reasons, people often think that um, you know people often don't acknowledge those reasons, and they mm. don't often see. I mean, for example, uh, one thing I wrote about, uh, I think it was 2016 or maybe 2015. It was about how uh, it was about refugee resettlement, and you know, at mm. that time, because of Trump, you were seeing a lot of these signs come up and I was seeing it all around DC, for example, all these signs being like, you are our neighbor in like all these different languages, sort of welcoming, you know, people of all uh, backgrounds and faiths. But the research at the time also showed that even, uh, you know, Democrat leaning um, voters or uh, Mm. people of those ideologies, they were more likely to favor refugee resettlement as like a general abstraction on a national Mm. level but once Mm. you know it came down to the local level and their own like um, neighborhoods or their own cities they were less likely to back it you know so Mm. things like that still exist and I think people need to be very um, careful about that we also you know 
school segregation and this same sort of pushback against affordable housing or right. homeless shelter they 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 are some of the worst fights on a local level that you'll see they become so contentious they become so and they who are the people like trying to push back against them they're often like you know white liberals or they're often mm. like affluent uh, and i'm not just going to say it's white liberals but it's also you know affluent uh, people of color who who are now or property owners right who have these ideas about uh, who who've subscribed to the same ideas um, exclusionary ideas and um, that's what keeps them in place right so so i think that that is something to recognize about cities um, that there's still a lot more work um, mm. you know there's certainly not equal in any way in terms of rural areas i i think it's really easy to demonize people as you know as backward um right. without understanding sort of their broader social context i also think people often use cities as a shorthand for people of color and rural as a shorthand for white people of mm. a certain class uh, and both of those are not true they're um, not true yeah there's a lot of black farmers for example a lot of the people who help like who work on farms are immigrants um mm. and so rural areas do have a lot of they have a certain amount of diversity that people just erase when they talk about rural areas i also think there are queer people in rural areas um in the appalachian and in all of these other you know there are people who are they're sort of existing in that context um mm. and they're often their interests and their like particular needs um are often not talked about when conversations about uh, rural america come up you know this is such an interesting conversation and especially to your point about people of color and even immigrants being opposed to certain ideas for instance i think many immigrant communities once they um settle in the US and they have achieved quote unquote the american dream this try to emulate american identity in ways which is far from perfect you know being more strict about who else comes into the US how they approach the idea of undocumented immigrants how they approach the idea of um asylum seekers and refugees did you see that happening more during trump era or is it something that's been consistent and we don't talk about it as immigrant communities we don't talk about our own biases and our own discrimination uh i think it's probably always been happening but mm-hmm. i do think that it has become uh, more visible maybe just because we're looking for that particular anti-immigrant sentiment and you know sort mm-hmm. of trumpism it embodies that and so um i think there's there's probably more attention on it um but i do think you're right in that we don't really talk about it and um i think different communities have different dynamics of course like you know there are vietnamese and cuban americans probably have a different you know because they're coming from communist countries they have a, mm. a that is informing their uh, viewpoint as well but i do think there's a general um there is often a tendency i'm not going to say for everyone but yes uh, if you become successful if yeah if, you know depending on who you are <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean certainly like you know i i'll talk about the indian community because i i know that very <laughs> intimately um right. yeah often you know the especially the indians that came post 1960s the reforms in 1960s um were often professional you know people of professional backgrounds who were already were able to afford a certain 
lifestyle and and they were able to afford coming to america mm. like legally um you know and when they got here they were of course had uh you know um experiences where they were marginalized um they were you know probably discriminated against or they were you know they they their food was made fun of or whatever you know mm. you know you know the range of experiences exactly. that you know <laughs> read about um but uh, and maybe experienced as well but um but i do think that once they become a reach a certain level of success um mm. as it is defined in american sort of social uh imagination you know right. a certain amount of wealth a certain amount of um obviously having how owning a house in a in a suburb having a car sending your kids to private school whatever it is those like specific markers of signifiers of wealth um then you start thinking that you know you've got there because you are hmm. somehow exceptional or um <laughs> there's a tendency to not realize that those things either came through luck or through a certain amount of you know um privilege Uh, that you already had and that um while they don't negate the experiences of you know discrimination that not everyone has that you know and so mm. newer waves of people may not have that um mm. they may have the systems may have changed may be, may have become hardened and more you know certainly it was easier to for example immigrate in the um in the 70s or 80s than yeah. it is now and so people don't understand that that, that time has changed and mm. that difference has changed you know the context has changed i also think there is a tendency to because they have been told that they don't quite belong um mm. in their you know probably first 10 years or whatever in the us um before they reach that level of success that they feel um that they need to constantly show that they do belong and a way to do that is by telling others they don't belong you know right um, So so I think there's a little bit of that happening too where people once they have reached a certain level of success or or you know they're sorted in terms of their legal status they can push back against others and be like actually now I'll vet who who comes in and who doesn't come in and who's good for our country and who's not I was good for you know the country and now I'll I'll get to just even weighing into that makes you know I'm imagining makes someone feel like they belong and they have a Amer- you know they are american and that's that's what americans do like vet who comes in and who doesn't you know you know but the irony of it is that during trump's four years um people who thought they would never be othered or they were part of american society or american social fabric were othered i can speak to muslim experiences it didn't matter if you were driving a fancy car or if you were living in predominantly white neighborhoods you were still othered so i think it was probably something of a i i don't know what to call it but maybe a watershed moment for everybody to realize you know what it doesn't work like that and by dehumanizing or demeaning other communities it doesn't strengthen us basically i think that that you know that's the thing that's the irony of it right you're trying so hard to belong and pushing other people distancing yourself from other people when you actually it doesn't matter what level of exactly <laughs> that that's just and i think what that means is you maybe have to change your ideas of belonging and what that means hmm. and you have to question that and whether it makes you know like belonging to what and what is that to you know like what is the thing yeah. you're trying to belong to and whether whether that needs changing um so that's what i think um 
I mean, that's my personal view, but uh, of course, um, you know, even some of my extended family, it's really difficult to have those conversations with them because they, like, who doesn't want to feel special, right? And so embrace that narrative of like, oh, we did it the right way, or we, Whereas there is no right way, there is just the you know choices you have and the constraints you have. So tell me, what is your idea of belonging? Um, I don't know if I have one yet, but I I can tell you it's not what uh, I mean. I, I I sort of feel like what I'm doing at this moment is just kind of poking holes in the prevailing ideas. I don't know <laughs> if it's a different thing that I want to create, but I I just don't know um, if there needs to be like sort of a club that you need to belong to. I want to question whether that club is worth it mm. um, or should exist. Um, right. Obviously doesn't mean that I'm saying, oh, should America exist? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is like, you know, the ideas of Americanness or um, the idea of if that's in the UK, then, you know, or the idea of, I don't know, we create different, different like sort of clubs, I think. And um, my... I don't know if I have alternatives, but I do want to question whether those clubs are, you know, worth um, trying to belong so hard in. <laughs> and and why can't we just assume to have a more nomadic lifestyle? Why can't we just be global citizens? Like when I think about belonging, I equally belong in America and Pakistan and maybe other parts of me want to belong somewhere else as well. It's very difficult to... Um, tie your identity, especially for immigrants like ourselves, to tie our identity to one geography or one social or cultural construct. It's always evolving for us. At least that's how I see it. Yeah, I think there's also research on that, that, you know, there are third or fourth contexts, geographical contexts that inform who you are. I mean, maybe sometimes it is you know, somewhere in the Middle East or, you know, there is such a big, obviously, Muslim population around the world and there is a certain degree of kinship and solidarity there. Um, Mm. For someone of a certain race, it might be that. You know, there are different ways of different sort of, uh, again, like different ties and connections and whether that's geography or something else. I, I do think that there is something to going beyond what our ideas of belonging are Mm. because I do think it's very important right now especially given everything that has happened and is still happening to global connections um, and form global um, streams of solidarity Um, you know because everything is so interconnected um, and seeing yourself as like sort of an island has never been kind of I mean even like a hundred years back doesn't make any sense and it certainly doesn't make sense now even like hitting Amazon, um, buying something on Amazon with one click uh, can completely shift someone's life somewhere else, you know, based yeah. on supply chain, for example. And I, I do think that there is growing urgency to kind of break beyond those very parochial ideas of your community. I think we need to think on a global level. Exactly. And as an immigration journalist, how do you think American public's opinion on issues like um, immigration and income equality are evolving? And I'm putting them together because I think they are so connected. They are intertwined. We can't talk about one without talking about the other and how immigration experiences are shaped based on how you come to the U.S.? 
I think there's a lot more work to be done on that front. Mm. Uh, I think there are not very um, deep understandings of like why people come to the US and what are the different ways in which they come to the US. Um, and, uh, you know, um, there, but there is a growing interest, I would say, in uh, especially among younger generations in understanding sort of, you know, the um, uh, like a global inequality. Um, and I'm hoping that that leads to a clearer understanding of global migration and, and the real reasons why it happens and how complicated it is. Um, mm. I think what right now is happening, and this is not just in America, but I, you know, since we are here, um, I'm just using it as an example. People talk like we we discussed in in terms of borders and laws without really understanding how that fits into the you know, historical uh, migration trends or global inequality or, you know, larger forces that are changing really everything around the world, right? Um, Mm. Climate change, for example, or wars and how those things are all connected. Um, But I'm hoping that there is more, uh, I don't think that level of understanding is currently there, but I'm hoping that in the future, given sort of the sort of resurgent interest in in inequality uh, just because it's so cute I guess at this point but mm. also because there is a lot more you know information available I'm hoping that that they get to that level at some point. Journalists of color probably are better suited to talk about these issues because some of these issues are their lived experiences like I am not a journalist but we did this episode on British colonialism and how it shaped migration patterns from the subcontinent. Many people in the U.S. are not aware of these realities. As you pointed out, wars, imperialism, um, U.S. foreign policy, climate change, how are they tied to how people migrate and why? Do you think we should be having more of these conversations? Are journalists trying to focus more on establishing connections between these different nuances? Um, I think in some cases, yes, there are some journalists that I can think of that certainly try to do that. But I do think that as a larger question, um, the industry in general could do more of that. What I've seen, uh, and I'm going to talk about specifically about the immigration beat for the last four years has been Hmm. um, partly circumstantial because there's just been so much thrown out by the Trump administration that, you know, you're Hmm. always following, running after something or the other um, in terms of like the stories. There was just so much going on that you kind of felt like you had to triage and you have to, a lot of the coverage became very incremental Hmm. Um, and very um, siloed in the sense that, you know, you're trying to, because you just need to, there was not a lot of information that was clear that was coming out. So either you had to, you know, dig into that information and, you know, a lot of the coverage became, the form or style became like just um, trying to get scoops or get, you know, information that the government was not openly sharing, Hmm. um, which I think was very useful. I think it led to a lot of lawsuits, a lot of like, you know, congressional action and stuff. So it does definitely have Hmm. its utility. But what what I'm hoping now, if the pace is a little bit slower and it's not all just like, oh, this is going to change another 100,000 people's lives every day, um, that people have a little bit of more of a chance to step back and actually make the connections to understand how you know, that last four years actually happened and how they could very easily happen again. How do you take care of your mental health as a journalist who covers immigration and so many difficult, complex issues? Do you have a routine? I do not have a routine. I should have a routine. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm not great at it, um, at uh, at boundaries and at which is not good. Um, I I I I think I have like phases where I'm better at it and phases where I'm not as good at it. I think you know I I left my last staff writer position and and started freelancing and that's been yeah. a little more helpful I think just as um it's given me a little bit more control over um the boundaries I can set um yeah. uh, I, I would just generally I think advice I, I think it was I, I think the last four years have been you know very high burnout rate for all journalists but like I think for immigration journalists um it has been very it has been just like constant you know a lot of depressing news and it's yeah. like always happening so um it's certainly been very um i i've, I've definitely have uh, had many instances of being really burnt out i would i would say that you know obviously the things that you can imagine help do help getting off social media from time to time that's really helpful um because you know <laughs> while i all enjoy being on twitter sometimes uh, sometimes it can just become a really really frustrating thing where everyone's sort of shouting past each other. Yeah. So so that you know definitely having offline slots of time is very helpful. Um I got a dog l- last past year and so Oh nice. Uh so that's been very helpful um I think um you know spending time with anything that I can do that doesn't require me to have my phone in my hand. Yeah. Um has always been really helpful. Then we are there any exciting projects that you're working on as you're freelancing is there something um that you're very excited about? Uh yeah, I'm I'm working on a couple of interesting projects but um I I think so I'm I'm working on a long-term project that I I'm hoping will do um what we just spoke about which is to make some connections between, you know, answer questions about why and how what are the decisions that lead to a person migrating and mm. then also what happens after they get there uh, what are the forces um that lead them for example to distance themselves from newer immigrants um mm. that's a question that you know um i, I want to hope to answer there i'm hoping that it makes those connections um it's going to be a, a collection of essays um interesting uh, and they're all you know obviously going to be um based on research and Uh, a lot of history and a lot of uh, policy research um and theology huh. um but i'm hoping to tie those threads together into something that helps both immigrants and non-immigrants understand the process that they've been through and why it happens and in the end if you were to describe america how would you do that oh my god describe america that is a difficult one um <laughs> uh i don't know whether to be extremely cynical or extremely honest on that question <laughs> uh, i would say it's a work in progress ah i like that yeah it's a safe one <laughs> i mean i i think that there are a lot of people who want to make it a a better place i certainly don't think it is as exceptional as the narrative. we thought it was yeah we thought it was or we were told it was is i think it's it's a it's a place that can be better where can people find your work um i'm on twitter at tanvm and that's where i share my work i have written previously for roll call the atlantic uh bloomberg city lab and i also have um writing in npr 
um, on the on the NPR website and on the BBC. Thank you, Tanvi. And your pieces are great. I've read some of them and they are so good and so nuanced, something that we need more of in journalism in America. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. It was a great conversation. What an incredible conversation. The biggest takeaway from this conversation, for me at least, is to focus more on reasons behind migration. Now, what I've noticed is that in American political and public discourse, the idea of migration is tabooed. It's as if it's a bad thing if people are moving from one place to another. Sometimes it's our choice to move. Sometimes we are forced to leave our homes and flee persecution, war, famine. But at the end of the day, we don't decide where we are born, but we have the right to choose where we want to live and how we want to lead our lives. Until next time, when we have another incredible guest. And please, everyone, don't forget to check out our Patreon. Anything counts. As low as $3 a month will make a huge difference for an indie podcast like Immigrantly. Take care.